Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming today's distinguished speaker, General David Petraeus, partner KKR and chairman of the KKR Global Institute. <laughs> General David Petraeus, Middle East Institute Chairman Bilahari Kosikan, members of the diplomatic community, honorable guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 9th SR Nathan Distinguished Lecture organized by the Middle East Institute of the National University of Singapore. Before leaving the floor to our distinguished guest, let me just say a few words uh, on our uh, two uh, members of the panel. Uh, General David Petraeus, Petraeus sorry, served over 37 years in the U.S. military, culminating his career with six consecutive commands. Five were in combat, including command of the surge in Iraq, U.S. Central Command and coalition forces in Afghanistan. Following his retirement from the military, he served as director of the CIA from 2011 to 2012. He's now a partner and chairman of the KKR Global Institute, which he established in 2013. He graduated with distinction from the U.S. Military Academy and is the only person in the U.S. Army's history to be the top graduate of both the demanding U.S. Army Ranger School and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. He also earned a Ph.D. from Princeton University and uh, I should mention that he earned his PhD in only three years, which might be one of the most impressive achievements of his career. He taught international relations and economics at the US Military Academy, as well as in various uh, academic, academic institutes in uh, the US. Let me say also that he earned numerous honors, awards, and decorations, including four Defense Distinguished Service Medals, the Bronze Star Medal for Valor, two NATO Meritorious Service Medals, the Combat Action Badge, the Ranger Tab, Master Parachutist, and Air Assault Badges. The moderator for today's session will be our chairman, uh, Mr. Bilahari Kosikan, who uh, uh, has spent his entire career in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs during his 37 years in the ministry served in a variety of appointments at home and abroad, including as ambassador to the Russian Federation, permanent representative to United Nations in New York, as well as permanent secretary of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Let me, let me now turn to our chairman, Mr. Vilahari Kosikan, to kick off the, the, this morning's proceedings with his welcome address. Well, I don't really have a welcome address, but I must welcome uh, General Petrius for taking the trouble and time to come a very long way to be with us this morning. And I hope you will all join me in welcoming him. Thank you. Uh, we have tried a different experiment with the SR Nathan lecture this year. Uh, instead of having one person talk to you, we are going to have, I'm trying to going to have a conversation with General Petrius, which I think will be much more interesting to all of you and I think to both of us as well. Uh, I will lead off with some questions. Um, 
for about half an hour or so. And then we'll take questions both from the floor and from the online audience. Uh, there are some 300 people odd registered for online, about the same number here. Uh, uh, and then I, don't, I have some questions prepared, but I want this to be a free flow discussion with your permission, General. And we will focus on the Middle East, of course, but I think we should not confine ourselves to the Middle East because many things are connected. Uh, so, when you ask your questions, I just have one, one request. Uh, make sure there are questions and not speeches in disguise, okay? So that, so that as many people can ask questions as possible. All right? Okay. And with that, let me begin, General. I understand you, your latest book is called uh, Conflict, uh, subtitled The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. And I guess, I haven't read the book, I must confess. I will try to get hold of it on Amazon, and I will read it. But from the title, I, I, I assume that, that you have that warfare is a constant. It's one of the realities of international relations, whether we like it or not. Now, from your research into this, from your own experience, what does all this tell us about our current situation? Well, first of all, let me just tell you, it's a real privilege to be here at the National University. Uh, as I was driving here with my team from KKR, I was asking whether this was the Harvard, or even better, the Princeton of uh, <laughs> Singapore, and they affirmed that it is, is indeed just that. And it's a privilege to do a lecture that's named for such a prominent uh, individual in Singapore's modern history, uh, who was, of course, the ambassador to the United States. He was the intelligence chief. He was the president of Singapore, among others. Um, and I also feel very privileged to do it with the chairman, uh, with given his own extraordinary service, uh, including, as we heard, uh, Ambassador of the United Nations, Russia, all he's done in academia, these books, Singapore is not an island, and it's still not an island, and all the rest of this uh, that is fantastic, and who started uh, this very institute. Um, so thank you very much for that. I think the two big takeaways from the book, at least what my co-author, uh, Andrew Roberts, a great biographer and historian, uh, sought to convey as we looked at all these different conflicts uh, was the critical component of strategic leadership. And we describe in the introduction the intellectual construct that I used, actually, as a strategic leader. I developed it between my three and four-star tours in Iraq and then used it during the surge in Iraq, uh, US Central Command, the Greater Middle East, and then Afghanistan, and then also when I was at the agency. And I think it applies in any uh, endeavor in life, but this is particular to the, the leader at the very top, because the strategic leader, uh, if you're going to succeed in any endeavor, including in conflict, has to perform four tasks superbly, competently, but particularly the first task. That first task is to get the big ideas right, to develop the appropriate strategy. You have to understand the situation, the context, your forces, enemy forces, uh, the human terrain, the physical terrain, the neighborhood, how it all works or doesn't work, et cetera, et cetera, and craft, again, the right strategy. <clears throat> you then have to communicate the big ideas, the strategy effectively throughout the breadth and depth of the organization that you're privileged to lead. 
Uh, you have to then oversee the implementation of the big ideas. That's what we normally think of as leadership, by the way. That's the example that the leader provides, the energy, the inspiration. Uh, it's attracting great people and keeping them as long as you can keep your hands on them. It's allowing those not measuring up to move on to something else. It's how you spend your time is crucial. And we had a very detailed, what we call battle rhythm. It was basically my calendar of recurring events. What you did, you know, in combat, seven days a week, Every single morning we took certain actions, did, did certain tasks, certain things, certain updates. And then depending on the day of the week, we would then go on to do whatever else. But how you spend your time, the meetings you have, seeing it for yourself, <clears throat> all the rest of this is absolutely crucial. It's how you drive the implementation of a very complex campaign plan. And then the final task um, has to be on your battle rhythm. Uh, by the way, you also, I'm sorry, have to get the metrics right. Uh, you have to measure what matters. Actually, there's a book written by a great Googler uh, that is titled that, and it highlights the importance of, you know, it makes sure you have the metrics that tell you whether the big ideas are actually working or not. Now, that implies that you get the big ideas right, and we have a number of cases where uh, we failed to do that, or it took a long time to do it. Uh, but the metrics really matter. The, the enemy body count metric, for example, in Vietnam was the wrong metric. Uh, we should have been focusing on security of the population and metrics associated with that. But that actually stemmed from the fact that we had a flawed strategy, which was one of attrition and search and destroy, which was very, very flawed. Uh, and it wasn't for 13 years that we actually got the big ideas right uh, in Vietnam. So again, you always come back to that first task. But then the fourth task uh, is to determine how you need to refine the big ideas as the context, as the situation evolves, as conflict or uh, civilian endeavor evolves. This is very appropriate in any leadership uh, position, the person at the top. By the way, all leaders have to perform these four tasks. The difference is that the leader at the top has to get that first task right because everybody else is working within the decisions that that top leader makes when it comes to the strategy. Everybody else within their respective remit, they have to do the same thing. Uh, but that first task for the strategic leader is what is really critical. Uh, this applies, by the way, also in the civilian world. I love to give the example of Netflix. Uh, Reed Hastings is one of the great strategic leaders of our time, right up there with Jack Ma, uh, with uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon and so forth. And if you think about Netflix, uh, it has had essentially four incarnations. The very first one, uh, where he decided that the big idea was we're gonna put movies in the hands of customers without having to use brick and mortar. We're not going to do what Blockbuster used to do, which is you had these brick and mortar stores with lots of movies in there, and you'd go in and happily peruse them and rent them, but it cost a lot of money to have that brick and mortar. And he figured that they could put them in the hands without brick and mortar, undercut Blockbuster, which they did, by the way. Blockbuster went out of business except for one location in a famously contrarian lo uh, locale in Oregon. Um, so that was his first big idea. He communicated it, oversaw it, got down here, determined now other people are doing this. What can we do now? And he recognized that this, the situation had changed. Broadband speeds became so much faster that you could have people download movies. So that's the new big idea. His third big idea was the real breakout. This is where Netflix decided we're gonna make our own content. $100 million on this one house of cards alone. Uh, but huge sums on a number of the other iconic series 
that are literally known around the world. And then the fourth big idea was they decided we're gonna make major motion pictures. And they went out and bought not one, but two major movie studios uh, in Hollywood. And they did that so well, talk about a great metric, that they got more Academy Award nominations uh, about three or four years ago than any other uh, major motion picture uh, studio. I did have issue with that. I've actually talked about this intellectual construct for him, uh, with him. Uh, he has a very similar model that he employs. But I did mention that I thought that the movie in which Brad Pitt played my very close friend, General Stan McChrystal, we had many years in battle together, uh, just didn't work. I thought that Brad Pitt didn't capture, you know, McChrystal doesn't march around like a little toy soldier. He's not <laughs> salute stiffly all the time. And it just didn't work. And beyond that, I just could not believe that Brad Pitt didn't hold out to play me. <laughs> but you get the idea here. And by the way, Ambassador, so very good to see you. Thank you for being here. Uh, we were looking forward to This is, the, I think, the longest serving uh, ambassador in the United States when he left, I believe. I think you eclipsed the Kuwaiti ambassador who had yeah. left before you and uh, served your country exceedingly well, but frankly served the relationship between our countries uh, exceedingly well uh, also, as did your predecessor sometimes removed. There's one other, uh, I think, big takeaway from the book. Um, and it really, it's related to something that Prime Minister Lee has raised with me uh, on several occasions, which is, you know, what happens in one part of the world actually matters in other parts. I remember I was actually here when the red line on Syria that the U.S. had established turned out not to be a red line. Uh, and I remember the Prime Minister saying, you know, General, that, has, that reverberates out here. Uh, that can undermine deterrence. So if you, for example, withdraw from Afghanistan when you really had a sustainable situation, it was not a good situation, but we could have easily sustained it. And, uh, and I argued against it, frankly. Uh, but when you do that, I think that sent a message to Russia, for example, that, you know what, I can probably invade Ukraine again, and the repercussions may not be all that much. Putin misjudged, failed strategic leader when it came to Ukraine. And Zelensky, a very impressive strategic leader, by the way, think of his first big idea. I don't want to ride, I want ammunition. I'm staying in Kyiv. My family's going to stay in Kyiv. We're going to defend Kyiv. These are huge ideas. And by the way, they were not the expected big ideas. The reason people offered him a ride is because they thought he'd have to leave Kyiv to go out to the West so that he wouldn't get taken hostage or prisoner. Um, and then he went on brilliant communication skills, positively Churchillian at that, oversaw the implementation, really a very impressive exercise of strategic leadership, but noting that that war is not over, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about that later, it is still ongoing, it is not concluded. Uh, and it's still in a very difficult situation. But so again, the two big takeaways, the importance, the critical nature of strategic leadership is literally determines whether or not in a, one side is successful uh, in conflict or another. Uh, and then the, the, the idea that everything is linked, everything does matter elsewhere uh, and as we'll discuss, I'm sure, when we get to the subject of this institute, the Middle East, uh, one of the dynamics, frankly, about the Middle East is that Las Vegas rules do not apply there. What happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East as things that happen in Las Vegas are supposed to do. Uh, although with social media, that's not always the case anymore. But so those are the big takeaways that we hope that people will take from it.
Thank you. That is a very good way to frame, I think, the rest of our discussion. We'll come back to the big ideas repeatedly. Yeah. That's why it's helpful yeah. to start out that well, way. Well, one of your other ideas, or a very profound question, which you were reported to have asked at the very beginning of the Iraq war, was, uh, tell me how this ends. Yeah, yeah. I so did. tell us how this ends. Tell us how Ukraine ends, and tell us, even more important, how Gaza ends. Sure. Well, I have to explain, first of all, the context of that. I was just a two-star general at the time. I was commanding the great 101st Airborne Division Air Assault, a very, very lethal organization, 254 helicopters and so forth, and a whole division of infantry. And we're conducting the fight to Baghdad in the early days of the invasion. And I could see that the assumptions we'd been provided were being invalidated one by one. I could see this wasn't going to end the way we'd been told it probably would end, that we would just topple the government or the top. Everybody else would stay in place and you know, we'd, we'd win. Um, then politicians would take over. They'd find a new person that everyone agreed on and would all go home to a victory parade. And it was evident as early as, say, the week and a half or so that that was not transpiring in that way. And so I had an embedded reporter, and I forgot that everything you say in, in his hearing is, is on the record. Uh, and I knew him really well, three-time Pulitzer Prize winner Rick Atkinson, the ambassador knows him as well. Um, and I said, tell me how this ends. This is just not going the way we expected. Um, ultimately, I'd like to think we did answer that question. The surge did, in fact, succeed, it drove violence down by 85%, it allowed us to do what we then wanted to do was gradually transition security tasks uh, and other p tasks to the Iraqi security forces and government. And unfortunately, the prime minister undid a good bit of that. But, but it did, uh, again, end, that war did end the way that we hoped it would at a certain point in time. We ultimately got the big ideas right. And, the, and by the way, the surge that mattered most was not the surge of forces. It was not the extra 25, 30,000 Americans in uniform. It was the surge of ideas. It was the change in strategy, 180 degrees, literally, you know, change management doesn't get any bigger than that. Gaza, let's look at Gaza with this framework in mind. Because I think uh, what's very clear is that there are two very big ideas uh, that are guiding uh, the Israeli military operations, in this case determined by Prime Minister Netanyahu and his senior military, uh, the chief of staff of the Israeli Defense Forces. And number one is to destroy Hamas. Number two is to dismantle the political wing, which has run Gaza. Um, destruction of Hamas, I think, is um, something that is based on their assessment, which I think is not misplaced, that Hamas is like the Islamic State. Uh, in, a, in essence, it's not reconcilable. It's when we saw the barbarity of the Islamic State, there was a recognition by the Iraqi security forces and then our Syrian Democratic Force partners that this organization had to be destroyed. Now, destruction in military terms means to render the enemy incapable of accomplishing his mission without reconstitution. Keep your eye on reconstitution because that is a task for which there is not yet a big idea that I'll come to. Um, so that's what they're out to do. We did that with respect to Al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, during the surge in Iraq. We also did reconcile, though, with a lot of the rank and file of the insurgent groups uh, that were just the lower level people. Then dismantling the political wing means you're going to take down the government, if you will, of uh, Gaza. I tend to think that there should be some additional big ideas 
uh, some of these are very, very difficult. Uh, nobody wants to see Israel reoccupy Gaza, including the Israelis, they've said so. Uh, the U.S. has cautioned them against reoccupying Gaza. Again, they want any alternative that is possible, the Israelis do as well. I just don't see an alternative. And I was just in Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Abu Dhabi is one of the, or Dubai was one of the big gatherings, not COP, there was another one uh, which gathers uh, senior government officials, uh, present and past, uh, and I've gone to for over a decade. And there's just no viable, no Arab country wants to volunteer to take this mission on. Uh, the ideal would, of course, and the goal eventually is to have a competent, capable, and trustworthy Palestinian entity that can oversee the Palestinians in Gaza, but we don't see one of those <laughs> even in the West Bank, much less, you know, on, as we would say, deployment orders ready to go in on the backs of Israeli tanks. So number one is what will be the governance, and I'm starting to think that it, it may by default end up having to be Israel at least for some period of time. I don't see an international organization that is eager to do that. So that's one of the big ideas that we need. Well, I was just in Japan talking about the Middle East with a very uh, close friend of mine who, is, who knows the Middle East very well, Japanese. And he made a bad joke, but which unfortunately has an element of truth in it. He said, nobody who knows anything about the Middle East will want to take over Gaza. No, of so you will, have to go, yeah. you will have to go somewhere very far away yes. to the South Pacific yeah. or something and then find somebody. And, and he asked me about the UN. Is there any chance? I said, no hope in hell. <laughs> I, I don't think so. No either. hope. Anyway, yep. it, wouldn't, it wouldn't work anyway. No, you have to have a base nation, <laughs> yeah, typically, yeah, that... Yeah. In, in the situations, I think, where there has been a reasonably robust force, yeah. it's the U.S. that is the anchor of that. And yeah. I don't see any yeah. willingness on the part of the U.S. either. So one big idea, who is going to administer Gaza, at least on a transitional basis, and it's starting to look increasingly to me like it will be have to be Israel as a default. Um, and then the other question is, what is the future for the Palestinian people yeah. in Gaza? And I believe as we, what we sought to do when we, clear, we cleared major cities uh, in Iraq during the surge, Ramadi 300,000, Fallujah two, 300,000, Mosul well over a million, Bakuba, et cetera, parts of Baghdad, Basra, and so on. Um, and the way that you do this is you lay out for the people in advance, life is going to be better because we're going to get these extremists, these terrorists out of your community. And we will not just destroy them, we're going to clear it and hold it and then rebuild it. Uh, and in other words, we're very concerned about you. And keep in mind, this is a war among the people. This is not a conventional war. It's better probably to think about it as a counterinsurgency campaign because then you're, you're very conscious of the need to uh, deal with hearts and minds uh, and to ensure that, again, there are plans to very rapidly provide humanitarian assistance, restore basic services, begin reconstruction, especially given the amount of damage that we're seeing uh, in the images that have come from there. So I think these additional big ideas uh, would be very well advised. We know, that has been all publicly said, that President Biden, uh, Secretary of State Blinken, Secretary of Defense Austin, and others have been uh, making suggestions to Israel about this, uh, about the need to keep collateral damage and civilian casualties, et cetera, to a minimum. But, but noting, as I should acknowledge, 
Uh, my co-author and I look back at the various conflicts that we covered since World War II. We can't think of any urban situation that was anywhere near as challenging as this is. This is an enemy who is truly barbaric. We saw what happened on 7 October. That's why Hamas is seen to be, uh, be you know, ultra extremist and has to be destroyed rather than reconciled or dealt with. Um, we see that it's an enemy who doesn't wear uniforms, who uses humans as, as shields, uh, has hostages, of course, 300 miles of tunnels just under Gaza City alone. And these tunnels are very, very well developed. They even have solar panels that bring oxygen down in, in or air down into these. They're very substantial. Um, the enemy, I think, at, over time is going to use more suicide bombers. This is a very particularly pernicious threat. Suicide vest, <coughs> suicide car bomber, something we dealt with in very substantial numbers, over 100 per month in the early months of the surge. And it's, it's very, very challenging for your soldiers because you literally have to keep people way beyond arm's length and vehicles as well. So it adds another dimension to this that folks don't normally think of when they think of, uh, of urban combat. And to do this right, you have to clear every building every floor, room, basement, and now tunnel. And so the challenges here are enormous, and I think we should recognize that as we uh, examine how the Israelis are doing this. Well, a question that comes to mind is whether an organization like Hamas can be destroyed. And what you can destroy the current Hamas. Yes. But these organizations, are as much ideas as they are, Organizations. Yes. You mentioned the Islamic State, right? Yep. It's a brand almost now. Yep. In Southeast Asia, you have spontaneous terrorist groups bring it out, mm -hmm. claiming to act in the name of yes. Islamic State. Yep. So that is connected to the other big idea. What is the long term? You need to have hope this is, for people, this, right? Well, this is the point. This yeah. is why there has to be a big idea for the people. And why you also, again, have to ensure there needs to be a big idea for how do you keep Hamas from reconstituting. Yeah. You're right. You can't put a stake through the heart yeah, of an idea. Yeah. You can through the heart of yeah. an extremist leader. Yeah. Um, and so I think the example of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became the Islamic State uh, after the surge, uh, is very, very cautionary. Uh, we were helping Iraq keep an eye on al-Qaeda in Iraq after the surge, three and a half years. Uh, after driving violence down again by nearly 90%. Uh, and then what happened is the Iraqis took their eyes off it after our combat forces withdrew and their prime minister took some highly sectarian actions. Uh, and within a couple of years, they'd reconstituted and you had the first ever uh, caliphate. Uh, and again, you can, and did, we went back in, we helped the Iraqi security forces eliminate the caliphate and destroy uh, the Islamic State as it was, but there are still remnants. So you have to keep an eye on it, and you do have to counter the idea. There still is a, if you will, a virtual caliphate, uh -huh. you know, in cyberspace. Uh -huh. uh, there's still activity. So what you have to do is both keep an eye and pressure on the extremist group that you have destroyed, uh -huh. defeated, uh, what have you, uh, and then you have to keep it from reconstituting physically, and you have to combat the idea, but the way you combat the idea is you make life better for the people yeah. than Hamas did. By the way, there's no great love of Hamas within, the, within Gaza. Um, the polling numbers are really quite low. It's much higher on the West Bank, 
Um, but in, in Gaza itself, the people know who has brought this violence and destruction and death on them. And, and again, the Israelis, others who are supporting Israel, you know, need to ensure that that is very clear. Well, one big idea that has been around for, for since 1967-68 is a two-state solution. In fact, yes. since 1948, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, the UAE ambassador, the UN, just mentioned it. Mm -hmm. If you are going to expect the Gulf monarchies to help in the reconstruction of Gaza, yep. there has to be some two-state solution. But there, but it doesn't seem to me anyway, and I hope you will contradict me, that, that there is any viable pathway to a two-state solution in the foreseeable future. And in fact, there is a conundrum. Any kind of solution requires stability. Mm -hmm. And after nine, uh, 7 October, what Israel needs to do to restore stability and deterrence against these groups will, at least for the immediate future, make a pathway even more complicated. Is there any way out of this? Well, I think, again, let's talk big ideas. What should the, okay, yeah. I acknowledge um, it for some years, yeah. the Palestinian leader has been unable to make the kind of compromises yeah. that are necessary to reach an agreement on the two-state solution, the various structures, the Camp David, then Ehud Olmert, and then uh, since then, uh, the John Kerry proposal. Uh, but you've also had a situation where the, the Israeli prime minister has often said, I can't make these compromises either, I'll lose, again, my coalition. But the big idea then should have been and should still be, well, at least try to contribute to the conditions that could enable an eventual two-state solution. In other words, help build up the institutions, of the Palestinian Authority, not just the security uh, forces, but all the other institutions as well, help build up the economy, build up the education system, and don't create more obstacles to an eventual two-state solution as well. And I think that's really the key, and yet that has not been followed sufficiently. But it's, it, none of this is ever too late, and there is no alternative to a two-state solution. Uh, obviously, neither Egypt nor Jordan is, is going to do what some people suggest, that they would take the West Bank or Gaza. Okay. Or what they, there's no, no. None, that's zero chance. No, Again, no, no. I was just talking to uh, Israeli and Jordanian uh, officials in Abu Dhabi and, and Dubai. And likewise, uh, a one-state solution for Israel would be obviously contrary to the democratic basis of that country. So there has to be a two-state solution. Um, I think it is well and good uh, that there should be a recommitment to it, not just by the United States as we have yeah. and other countries, but uh, indeed by Israel. Yeah. And then let's adopt these big ideas that at least don't create more obstacles to an eventual two-state solution. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to Gaza and other conflicts in the Middle East, but I want to move away from that for a moment, right? To me, these conflicts, they are important, obviously, but there is something much more important that is going on in the Middle East. And that is the efforts of the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, mm -hmm. Oman, you know, to reform their economies. And that necessarily entails reforming their societies, including how uh, Islam is conceived of. Mm -hmm. UAE has gone, the ambassadors over there, UAE has gone a, a, a long way in making that is a place for Islam. There will always be a place for Islam, right? But this is a, it's an individual place, not a political place. And that, I think, these social cultural changes are much more important in the long run than any particular conflict. 
How do you see it? Oh, I agree with you very much. Yeah. I think uh, UAE is extraordinarily impressive in that regard. Uh, I've been going there since, I think, it, at least the late 1990s, if not actually earlier than that. Mm -hmm. So I've watched Abu Dhabi and Dubai develop so incredibly, frankly. Uh, and they've gotten the big ideas right repeatedly. Uh, and and it, what's interesting also, obviously there are other Emirates than just Abu Dhabi and Dubai, but they're the two prominent ones. What's particularly interesting is to see how the two have evolved themselves. Yeah. One has become, uh, one doesn't have major oil and gas reserves, yeah. uh, and it has become this incredible transshipment hub, uh, all roads, you know, it's sort of the Atlanta of, yeah. you know, everybody, you know, in the southeast, yeah. every road leads through the Atlanta airport, which is sometimes nightmarish. Actually, Dubai's airport is not at all, but you've got incredible throughput, but there's also maritime port, and again, transshipment there. It's also become now a major convening center, uh, tourist center, all of these. It's just quite spectacular. And then Abu Dhabi has its other path, which is also, of course, the, the seat of the UAE uh, overarching government. So yes, they've been very, very impressive. Um, you're seeing very impressive reforms in Saudi Arabia. Yes. Uh, again, the idea of women driving, uh, these other uh, initiatives are- that Women are working. <laughs> That, that as well, the part of Vision 2030 and so forth. Yeah. Again, uh, some of these almost breathtaking. We'll see, again, whether all of these can be, I remember talking to the Crown Prince one time some years back, and he said, you know, if we just could accomplish 65% of this, it'll be extraordinary, and it will be, and I think they will, by the way. Uh, and so they're on track to do that. You see what Qatar's doing, you see Bahrain and the others. Again, these are all Oman as well. Um, by the way, we have a wonderful a segment in the book on great strategic leadership, which was the Sultan of Oman with his British Brigadier uh, advisor, uh, Brigadier General Frank uh, John Akehurst, um, who then, you know, typical British fashion, he wrote this delightfully titled book, We Want a War, uh, but they did, so it was actually accurate, uh, but that was the uh, counterinsurgency campaign against the Dofar Rebellion. And so you've seen, you know, very enlightened leadership there yeah. over the years. I knew the previous sultan yeah. exceedingly well, Sultan yeah. Qaboos, and had enormous regard for him. The problem is, of course, there are other locations where you just don't see this. Yeah. And so you still have essentially a civil war ongoing in Syria, uh, one in Yemen, uh, one in Libya, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and these tend to spew violence and extremism and instability from, yeah. and refugees from time to time uh, in a very, very destructive manner. Yeah, it seems that there are actually two Middle East. There's a northern tier where things are not going too well except for Israel and to some degree Turkey. And you have a southern tier where things, generally speaking, apart from Yemen, are doing all right. Yeah? Or is it moving? I, well, of course, unfortunately, Yemen's down in the south. And of course, yeah. it's, it's, it's quite, quite challenging. And the Houthis now are also making trouble in the Red Sea. I, you know, I would add Jordan to the list of yeah. impressive countries. Yeah. Again, and, and think of it as a country that has almost nothing. You know, has no yeah. oil, yeah. not much natural gas, no water, uh, and yet it has what it has is human capital. Yeah. It has an entrepreneurial spirit, uh, and it has defied all odds, and it has yeah. to manage all of these different neighbors and so forth. Yeah. And I think it's done a very impressive job in that regard. Well, yeah, I mean, Egypt, Jordan, Israel, that nexus cannot yep. be separated. Yep. Right? Um, and of and course, Henry Kissinger had a lot to do with structuring yeah. that, if yeah. you think about it. In fact, he very kindly wrote a blurb, his last blurb, we believe, for the book. He was at a, 
a luncheon event in New York about, I think about six weeks ago. Um, and very, very uh, uh, sharp still. And I remember he was discussing the differences between the 1973 war, the Yom Kippur War, uh, and the current conflict between Israel and Hamas, and noting that you know, the antagonists in the Yom Kippur War, they all had, there was a phone number, there was a leader, yeah. and he could literally make four phone calls or visit, because yeah. it was really shuttle diplomacy, as you'll recall, four different leaders in four different countries, and he could broker a ceasefire between Israel and Egypt, which eventually some years later turned into mutual recognition and so forth, uh, an agreement. The same with, uh, again, uh, King Hussein in, in Jordan and then Hafez al-Assad in, in Syria and Golda Meir in Israel. Very, very different situation now. Of course, any negotiation with Hamas is going on indirectly through the Qataris, uh, through a leader in uh, Doha, et cetera, and then back to the individuals, and it's very, very cumbersome. So again, a, a very historically different situation. Well, there is one country that we haven't mentioned even right now, and yet it is in the background of many things, including the Gaza war, and that's Iran. Very much so, sure. And, you know, we used to have a saying when I was, again, commanding in the greater, we still have it, you know, in the Middle East, you really need to know who your friends are, and you need to be very clear on who your enemies are. Uh, and Iran is clearly in that latter category, without question. Uh, there have been various attempts to try to have relationship with them in some fashion, noting that, you know, we've always talked with our enemies, uh, even during wars. Uh, a lot of, again, one of Henry Kissinger's great, other great achievements beyond opening to China. Yom Kippur War was, of course, a degree of rapprochement, a relationship with Russia to try to ensure that we didn't end up in World War III. Uh, but Iran, a particularly problematic country, and um, we occasionally use uh, a metaphorical image of uh, really the U.S. and the Western world, or the, the as a group, have to keep a lot of different plates spinning. You know, the guy in the yeah. circus that gets a plate on a stick and gets it spinning, then another one, and pretty soon you have a whole tent full of plates spinning. And in this image, the plates represent the challenges that are out there. And we, we contend that there are more challenges, more threats, if you will, than at any time since World War II, and the complexity of some of those uh, is greater as well. You can argue in this case that Iran almost has three plates because you have the Iranian nuclear program, yeah. which is so worrisome, and frankly, you know, the U.S. policy is to not allow them to have a nuclear weapon. There is a plate that represents their support to these very dangerous uh, and malign Shia militia in uh, yeah. Hezbollah yeah. in southern Lebanon, Shia militia in Iraq, uh, Houthis in, in yeah. Yemen, uh, and so on. Uh, and then you have really the missile and drone and rocket program that is also uh, very concerning. So uh, Iran is indeed uh, a continued very serious threat. It is a revolutionary power. It is not a status quo power. Uh, and it has to be dealt with as such. And you, know, you try to manage it to the best extent that you can, but recognize, I think, that you have to have limited aspirations about that. Well, one of the key aspects of management is, of course, the nuclear dimension, which you mentioned, right? And you also mentioned the connections right, between different theaters in yes. different parts of the world. Uh -huh. It seems to me that one of the uh, casualties of Ukraine has been to substantially weaken the non-proliferation regime. 
Certainly, I think I've heard North Korean diplomats tell me, why did they give it up, <laughs> meaning Ukraine? And well, how, do you stop, how do you stop Iran? Because that is yeah. not going to be tolerated by Israel or Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Omar bin Salman has been very clear. We don't want to be a nuclear power, but if Iran goes that way, we will, we will not be far behind. Right? And I, then I, others I, will come. <laughs> I mean, I, I am pretty clear on how you prevent it's, that from happening. Yeah. And in fact, when I was the commander of U.S. Central Command, this is all publicly known, we developed the plan to destroy the Iranian yeah. nuclear program. Uh, we actually rehearsed it yeah. uh, one time uh, inside the U.S. And we also, as we say, set the theater one time as well, where we had everything prepared if we had to go in that direction. No. Um, and so Iran needs to be keenly aware of that. We don't want to have to do that. No. We obviously don't want to have to go to war. Um, and you know, for those who might think, not in this room, I don't think, but those who think that you know, generals are always keen to go yeah, to war, no. it's not the case at all. Yeah. Especially those who have seen what war brings uh, yeah. in terms of the human loss and terrible yeah. wounds. Uh, but you have to be prepared to do that, we are. Um, it's a more challenging mission now because of the addition of a Russian air defense system yeah. to the Iranian arsenal, but it is doable. And I think that the pledge of the President of the United States uh, that we will not allow Iran, of uh, multiple presidents, uh, is very firm. Well, I came to a very, very pessimistic conclusion. And I'm sorry you have not made me any more optimistic, <laughs> right? That you, you know have to deal the, with the, world the only the way, way to stop them is kinetically. Well, I hope not. Actually, I mean, I hope was, not too. But there was a period where there was an agreement. Yeah. Um, I was not a, an enthusiastic yeah. supporter of it, but yeah. I did uh, agree with actually the Israeli Defense Force chief of staff at the time of the yeah. nuclear agreement that it made Israel more secure. Okay. Uh, for the forthcoming at least 10 years and perhaps longer than that. Uh, and I think there was something to that assessment. Well, I am going to ask one more question and Please. then we'll open it to the floor, right? Sure. And that's, of course, about U.S. policy. To me, one of the consequences of the Gaza War is to reinforce what ought to be obvious, that the U.S. is indispensable to whatever stability is possible in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. If the Financial Times is to be um, believed, after you deploy two aircraft carriers and a nuclear submarine, Iran sent word that we, they don't want a wider war. Yeah. And I think only the US can do that. China can't do yeah. that. Russia certainly can't do that. The Europeans can't and, do and that. And they won't do it. And they won't do it, yeah. right? And um, the Europeans will do it as part of another country. A part of, part of a, a larger, a larger thing, right? Same. Sure, we have So allies. what is the future of U.S. policy in the Middle East? Because there have been a lot of loose talk after yep. Afghanistan it's about retreats and so on, yep. you know? Yep. No, it's a very good question. And I think that perhaps one of the lessons of the current crisis should be that we should maintain a somewhat more robust presence in the oh. Middle East than we had. Oh. Uh, I thought that the term that was used at the time that we uh, created the new focus on the Asia-Pacific, the Indo-Pacific, as yeah. we now term it, the term pivot was a very, very unhelpful No, it's not a good term. term I agree with you. Because it implied that you pivot away from the Middle East, whereas what we were really doing was rebalancing. Yes, we were focusing. We should focus more. The future is Asia. You're all part of it. We're right here. That's why I'm here this week, in fact, uh, and going throughout Southeast Asian countries. So uh, clearly, rebalance is correct. Pivot implied something that was unhelpful because it 
it created worries in the minds of those uh, in the Middle East. I should also note there are other dynamics that are just a reality. The U.S. is, a, is the biggest producer of crude oil and natural gas in the world by far. In fact, we've just surpassed our crude oil production again. Uh, we are a net exporter of crude and a huge exporter of natural gas, and that's continuing to grow as we develop additional um, uh, uh, liquefaction plants and then as the regasification plants around the world are increased as well. Uh, and that created worries in the Middle East. We didn't have a dependence on the Middle East the way that we used to. And so that critical uh, reliance on them in that regard obviously much diminished. So you have all of these different dynamics. But the bottom line is, you know, what we came back to said yeah. in the beginning, Las Vegas don't, rules don't apply there. And so therefore yeah. you've got to make sure that what happens, that, that it doesn't happen there because it won't stay yeah. there. And so I think that out of this, will come a somewhat more robust presence there uh, and a recognition that our, maybe some of our hopes for really drawing down, yeah. which we did do. Keep in mind, there were yeah. 250,000 men and women in uniform and more than that number of contractors in the greater Middle East when I was privileged to command U.S. Central yeah. Command. It's vastly less yeah. than that now. And it doesn't need to go back to that remotely, but it should be more robust than it has been. Well, fifthly, they're still in Bahrain. It's Air Force is still in Qatar and UAE, you know, so. So are there questions from the floor? Yeah, Eli, please identify yourself too. Somebody will bring you a microphone. Thank you very much, good morning. I'm Eli Veret Khazan, the Israeli ambassador. Thank you for a very interesting conversation. And I want to ask you, how do you foresee the relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia under the current situation? It's a very good question. I'm sure, Ambassador, that you've been, you know, a bit heartened that there has not been, uh, you know, the, the agreement that was very close to being reached. As you well know, yes, there were some components to it that still hadn't been agreed, especially having to do with assurances for the Palestinians and especially in the West Bank. I mean, the irony is that Hamas derailed an agreement that would have included safeguards uh, for the Palestinians, and very likely some kind of renewed commitment to elements of, if not completely, uh, two-state solution. And of course, Saudi Arabia has always championed uh, the particular approach. Um, but I think it's interesting to see that uh, Saudi Arabia has not walked away from that. Yes, it's on hold for a period of time. But you know, it's not surprising. If we really think about that, there's obviously no love lost between the Gulf states and Hamas. In fact, Hamas represents the biggest threat, I think, to the Gulf states. I mean, I'll look at the Emirati ambassador and see if he agrees. But, you know, the biggest concern I've talked to when he was the Crown Prince, uh, Ben Zayed, the worry was not actually even the really obvious extremists like Al Qaeda. They can see, they would say, we can see them and we can identify them, we can deal with them, we can keep an eye and pressure on them. It's political Islam which is part of what Hamas very clearly represented, that they said was much more of an insidious force. It sort of creeps in, and all of a sudden, it's, it's in your, your community. Uh, frankly, a little bit the way Hamas did in Gaza. Keep in mind that you, know, you, you left in 2005. Uh, there was an election, I guess, in 2006. Hamas won. 2007, they basically killed or intimidated all the remaining uh, uh, other elements, Fatah of the uh, Palestinian uh, political spectrum, took over 
And of course, there's never been an election since then. So I think there's, again, there will not be many tears, I don't think, in the capitals of the Gulf states uh, over the destruction of Hamas. There clearly are concerns, grave concerns, obviously, about what is going to be the situation for the Palestinian people uh, in Hamas or in uh, Gaza after this. Uh, and then I think also, okay, who's going to keep an eye on Hamas and who is, of course, going to administer uh, this transitional situation there? And that's the conundrum. And I know your government is wrestling with that. I know the two different groups that are working their way through this. There's just nothing but difficult. Uh, options there. They're all, in a sense, bad options. Um, and the question is, which is the least bad? And maybe even just what is the only option? Because there don't seem to be any other hands going up around the world. You know, I, in my career, I was the head of a number of coalitions, um, very, some very substantial, dozens, many dozens of countries, including a, a, a UN force. I was the chief of operations for the UN force in Haiti. Only a blue beret. I had no U.S. Uh, hat in that regard. The U.S. was the most important contingent. But uh, you, you can, I've seen what, a, it was a good force, actually. It was very capable for the period of time that we remained committed to it. Unfortunately, we didn't sustain that. But I don't see an alternative like that in this case at all. Uh, and knowing, again, about coalitions, you've got to have a foundational element best is if it's American, frankly, because it brings the most robust capabilities, and then you put together all the other capable forces. I, don't, I just don't see that as a, as a particularly viable option. But if you want to follow up, uh, I'd be happy to, if you want to challenge or grade my work here. Uh, please. Yes, yep. Then, then the question is, so, so then, again, my, my gentle challenge or, or, or question is, who is going to ensure not only administration of this, but who is going to ensure that Hamas is not able to reconstitute? Iran is going to help Hamas in any way that it can. It's eager to help it reconstitute and cause problems for uh, the other countries in the region. And that's, I think, the challenge. And then, then it's a difficult. The idea that you can just do a few raids every now and then, we did this. We used to bang away in Ramadi every single night uh, in, in Fallujah with special operations forces doing raids and so forth. And the situation got worse and worse and worse. Unless you go in and clear and hold and rebuild and very slowly build, if you will, the, the, the local capabilities and uh, governance and other, and then uh, at some point in time, security forces as well, uh, and very gradually transition only as the conditions are met. But I know that I, I realize the challenges, and so I have I have the theoretical. This is Professor Petraeus, uh, sort of lay, you know, <laughs> academics. They can always lay out the problems, and then they leave it to the the diplomats and the policymakers to resolve them. So again, in my academic hat, I'm quite good at laying out the issues you have to deal with. <laughs> and I'll leave it to you. To... Ambassador, please. Please, right yeah. up here. Can someone? Uh, and then uh, there's one here. Uh, no. First you. Huh? OK. 
Thank you. Thank you, General Ashok Mirpuri from Tomasic. Such a pleasure to see you here in Singapore. Great and we've discussed this trip for some time. Great that you're with Tomasic, by the way. Congratulations on that. There is life after government, apparently. There is. We, discussed, <laughs> we actually discussed before he came back. So, yep. yeah. I wanted to go back to the United States, which you spoke about as the mm -hmm. indispensable power. Leaving Washington earlier this year, you started to see some of the ground shift about U.S. support at that time for Ukraine, yep. Yep. and now even on the Israel issue where there should mm -hmm. have been rock-solid support, you're starting to see fraying in the Democratic parties. Yes. So give us a sense of what's going on in Washington. Is this just all presidential politics leading up to next year? Is there really a shift of thinking of what to do with Ukraine, what to do with Israel, and about U.S. leadership around the world? Thank you. Well, it's a great, you know, characteristically astute question from a very astute ambassador. Um, some of this is presidential politics, obviously, the run-up to that. You've watched several of these, a number of these campaigns uh, during your uh, years in Washington. So some of that is just trying to find a place to uh, create a crack, to show that we're different, we have a better idea, or whatever it may be. Some of it is the uh, long-standing appeal that we've always seen that Americans, just like any other citizens, would like to do nation building at home rather than abroad. And I contended with that you know, at various moments when we were doing huge nation building in Iraq than huge nation building in Afghanistan. Uh, and we'd have to remind people, you know, we're not doing this out of, this is not charity. This is because it's in our national security interest and inevitably in our economic trade prosperity uh, interest to do so uh, as well. Um, so that's, uh, but there has historically been a strain of isolationism in the United States, given in a way our advantageous uh, security situation, you know, two oceans on east and west, and then two friendly countries, north and south, however many challenges there may be in our southern border, which is yet another uh, challenge that we have. Um, what's interesting is that the same bipartisan majority that you knew in the first 18 months of the war before you left or so, uh, the first year of the war in Ukraine, is still very present, very, very strong, solid bipartisan support in the Senate and really even in the House, although it's the House dynamics. These are the challenges that the agreement that had to be uh, reached for Speaker McCarthy you know, one person could take him down, and one person did take him. This is completely, you know, unprecedented in our uh, in our history. So um, you have that dynamic there, and you know, there's as always, I think, just a slight degree of frustration with what long wars. I mean, this is not even at the two-year mark, but there's. I remember when I was the commander in Iraq, there was a there was a cartoon, and it was George Washington going across the Delaware, you know, on Christmas Eve for this great raid that he conducted that gave a little bit of hope after a dismal first year of the Revolution where he'd been defeated in Long Island, New York, uh, run out of New York, run out of New Jersey, and now he's coming back and he does this famous raid in Trenton. And, and, it, and there's an embedded reporter with him this time, though. And the embedded reporter is asking, you know, when is this going to end? Uh, you know, what, how long is this going to take? Uh, tell me how this ends and all this kind of stuff. So there's always that aspect uh, of this as well. Um, and frankly, then a recognition, uh, sadly, that the hoped-for gains in the summer offensive uh, were not, did not materialize. We should have recognized that. We didn't provide the air power soon enough. You have to have air superiority to breach those kinds of defenses, according to our doctrine. Our decision on tanks was delayed and delayed, therefore, the German decision on tanks. 
the longer range. There's a whole series of details. That was standing enormous American support. $44 billion of uh, security assistance is huge. But, you know, put it in context, over a two-year period, our defense budget for that two-year period is $1.8 trillion. We can afford 44. And by the way, you know, I'm in a, the world of return on investment uh, as a partner in KKR. The return on investment for NATO for its support of Ukraine is the destruction of over 60% of the Russian tank fleet, which dramatically reduces the threat uh, to the Baltic states uh, and to anywhere else where Russia might have had designs. My hope is that this quite substantial amount, I think it's over 60 billion or 70 billion that the president has asked for, will ultimately be approved. It will be together with a package that has assistance for Israel, uh, perhaps also for countries out here uh, or, or locations out here, and for our southern border as well, probably. And there's probably going to have to be some policy uh, on southern border. That's the other big area that where the one party is driving a wedge in the body politic against the other party. So it's the, all those dynamics that you've seen. There is a little bit, you know, arguably a little bit greater uh, uh, uncertainty. Um, you know, you're seeing all these different op-eds for Eid Zakari and others that I think try to capture this almost on a daily basis, the finger on the pulse of the mood. And, you know, there's a degree of questioning that we're going through. I'm not sure I always understand this. I mean, our economy is doing exceedingly well. All of the doomsayers, you know, our inflation's down to 3.1% as of yesterday. Uh, growth is still quite robust. Um, unemployment is still at close to historic low levels despite the significant increases in the Federal Reserve uh, interest rate, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> but I think we're, you know, we have a capacity. Do we have any Germans in here by any chance? Um, so, look, I mean, the Germans are very, very open that they have angst. I mean, Germany, when it was running incredible uh, uh, budget surpluses, uh, it was the envy of Europe, very low unemployment. The industry is all doing, everything is just going famously well, and yet there was this tremendous German angst, always. And having served in Germany, I, I, I think I have some... Uh, observation on this. The same is true to a degree of the United States. We have a little bit of a capacity for angst. It's not quite as, it's a different form of, of than Germany. It's a little bit more self-criticism and fractious. But I think that's there as well. So the country hasn't changed since you left, Ambassador. Okay. <laughs> Steve, you have a question? Hi, General Steve Oaken. Uh, hey, good to see you, Steve. I, I, I didn't recognize you. You know, there's sort of bright lights here. Um, building on Ashok's question and, and your noting that there's been a strain of isolationism yep. in the United States, what happens if we were to have a next president who really brings back an America first foreign policy, you know, withdraw from you? I can't imagine who that might be. Um, <laughs> I don't want to figure out too much on this Well, you know, look, it depends on, I remember I used to say in the previous administration, yeah, okay, read the tweets because they're the unedited expressions of you know, the feelings of the moment. But then follow the troops, follow the money, and follow the policy. Uh, and when it came to the Indo-Pacific, for example, there was a very strong commitment. Uh, it was that administration that really changed the conversation, if you will, on the Indo-Pacific. Uh, it really started a lot that this administration has continued. There's much more continuity uh, when it comes to that, the most important theater in the world, 
than change. Uh, and if anything, this administration is just taking it a little bit further here and there. Yes, there's you know, a, a bit of a competition in Washington at times to be tougher, you know, and this and that, that kind of thing. But some of that, I think, is presidential politics as, as well. Um, so I, I think you have to walk your way around the world and ask what would the impact be. I think there would be a good bit more worry, if you will, say in NATO uh, than certainly out here. I think out here you're going to see a, a continued very substantial, very strong. There, look, the one issue on which the members of Congress do agree uh, very strongly uh, is the need to uh, be more robust in our commitment to deterrence uh, and to transformation of our forces uh, and all the rest of that out here in the Indo-Pacific. Okay, I finally have, got some questions online. Excellent. Uh, but uh, he so to, I, he's I, demonstrating a, his technological skills here. Yeah, I, it, it's, maybe it's me. I didn't come true. Right? <laughs> okay. Well, first we have a question over there. Let me take okay. one online question first, okay. then here, and then uh, Ambassador, you have a question. Okay, the online question is about China and the Middle East. Okay. You had mentioned that the U.S. is no longer dependent on the Middle East energy, but China is still quite substantially. Depend on the Middle East. Very, energy. very. It's the single biggest customer, yeah. obviously, by far. And far yet, away. the energy routes are being, in effect, to China from the Middle East are being, in effect, protected by the U.S. Navy. Because the U.S. the people Fair enough. plan Navy yeah. is yep. has only an occasional presence. Sure. So Fair is enough. this sustainable? And and what do you expect? I think it is sustainable because it is in the U.S. national interest to ensure freedom of navigation yeah. in the Gulf and also through the Red Sea and through other Babam and all these different locations. It's in our national interest yeah. for that. Um, even though, yes, we aren't the ones that are buying yeah. the vast majority of this, but the bottom line is that it is still uh, oil and gas from the Mideast that largely powers the global economy. Yeah. We are the largest economy in the global economy. It, we benefit, again, from the fact that it, it continues quite robustly. Uh, and in fact, by the way, this year we're going to grow more than any other, in absolute terms, just sure absolute, uh, I think more than, not in percentage, but more than any other large country in the world. So um, it is, that's why we do it. It's why we'll continue to do it. It's why we countered piracy, by the way, when I was commanding out in Central Command. That was yet another of our missions. Um, by the way, I should note, we had Chinese ships working with our task force. There was no formal organization. There was no formal relationship or authority. They literally would show up uh, they would communicate with our flagship. Uh, we had a coalition task force uh, that was doing the counter-piracy mission. Uh, and then they would pitch in and do their part, actually. It was all coordinated, and it was, it was actually quite helpful. I, it gave some hope that on some of these kinds of missions where there's a common interest, because piracy was very serious, as you'll recall, back at that point in time. We had to focus considerable resources. And ultimately, by the way, we had to get the big ideas right. And the big ideas we had, our presence was very important, but it was nowhere near sufficient. What we had to do, we went to one of the major maritime conferences, and we said, we have three uh, tasks we need you to perform to limit the effectiveness of piracy. Number one is, if you see a pirate, don't slow, you know, these, they're in these uh, uh, essentially open uh, boats with enormous outboard engines on them and a lot of fuel usually. Um, and if you see them coming up your wake, don't slow down. Believe it or not, they were slowing down and so forth. Uh, start to 
do this because again, you got a big enough wake, it's very hard for them to, to then navigate. Because what they're trying to do is come up the wake of a ship and grapple onto the pilot's ladder. So the next one is take up the pilot's ladder. Now this is not as easy as a, you know, a speedboat where you throw a little rope ladder over the side, but you have to unbolt it and everything else, and that's cumbersome and difficult. But if you want to prevent pirates from coming up, that's pretty important. And then the third one was over time. Uh, it was also to, they put uh, armed guards on board. And that was the, it, this combination of big ideas is what virtually drove piracy out of business for a period of time. There was also some help from some authorities uh, on the coast of Africa in, in the Somalia, uh, but also the coalition. Over there, there's a question. I Thanks very much. Uh, good morning. I'm Nicholas from the Singapore Institute of International Affairs. Uh, Ambassador knows I, I won't make a speech, but I tend to ask more than one question in one. one so one, one. I'll, I'll wrap everything into one. I, I have a book, uh, General. I really enjoy reading it. I haven't finished it. I brought my copy here today. I'll lend it to Ambassador if he wants after. Um, but on the issue of the big ideas, uh, when it comes to, you, you mentioned a little bit about the things that, that uh, strategic leaders get right in terms of big ideas. Uh, I, I agree with you, by the way, uh, Brad Pitt really should have played you. Um, Thank you. But in terms of what they get wrong, uh, typically, could you share some insight as to what, what strategic leaders get wrong in terms of big ideas and what we can learn from that? And on the other big idea in the book, the, the notion that everything is linked to everything, um, when it comes to the conflict uh, in Gaza currently, small countries like Singapore, very concerned of the spillover when it comes to yep. uh, you know, re religious tensions and things like that. Yep. What could strategic leaders in this part of the world learn from that and, and what should they be planning for? Uh, and if we look at Ukraine, Gaza, and potentially tensions in the South China Sea, which you've touched on a little bit, uh, what does, does this linkage of tensions mean for global stability? Is it something that we could look out for, we can hope for, or are you pessimistic about that as well? Thank you. Well, on the middle question there, uh, you managed to get three in into your one. Nicholas is like that. Mr. Chairman, we have to work on discipline here in the room. I know him. Um, okay. <laughs> I think, I'll settle actually, with him later. I think the strategic <laughs> leaders out here have been hugely impressive. Um, I've been discussing these issues with leaders out here for over 15 years. Um, and I think the way that they have reacted repeatedly has been very, very impressive. Um, and you know, there, there's a, an allowance of a certain free speech to a certain level, there are, but there are limits to that. Uh, extremism is not tolerated. Um, and again, the way that that has been operationalized, because it's one thing to have the big ideas, that, and I think they've been quite impressive. And there's lots of detailed sort of little ideas here as well. Uh, but then how you actually implement those, how you operationalize the big ideas, and of course you have to communicate them to the public that this is acceptable, this is not. I think again, it's been very impressive, particularly frankly here. Um, you know, this is a very multi-ethnic, multi-sectarian, multi-everything. I think the Muslim population is somewhere around roughly 15%. Uh, and I'm not aware of any serious issues for many, many years, uh, actually. And when there has been even the inkling of it, there's a very early identification of it. Uh, and it's dealt with, again, very firmly, but uh, very impressively. So I think in that regard, um, when it comes to failure to get big ideas right, we have a number of examples in the book. I mentioned one, which was that the U.S. in Vietnam, the South Vietnamese, because of course the French had left. By the way, talk about a terrible big idea. Uh, the French who were frustrated that they couldn't bring the, the 
Vietnamese communists to battle. They were fighting as guerrillas when they wanted to fight, not when the French wanted to fight. Uh, very elusive. And so the French decided, you know, we'll create a location that'll be so attractive to them that they're actually going to come and fight. And so they build this big base quite far out, especially in terms of air power at Dien Bien Phu. And that turned out to be a historically horrible big idea because, of course, the communists did come to fight. Uh, the French thought they'll never get artillery up into the hills. They did. They took them apart and carried them up piece by piece. Uh, and the French, of course, eventually uh, had to surrender and went into captivity. You eventually had the a, a peace agreement in Geneva and partitioned North and South Vietnam. So we arrive in the mid-1950s, and the South Vietnamese said, you know, we have a guerrilla problem in our villages and hamlets. Could you help us with that? And we said, well, you know, that's not really the big, you should be focused on the North invading from the South. We just experienced that in Korea. And so we'll show you how to do that. In fact, we'll actually help you make nine divisions that look exactly like our divisions, because uh, that's the big threat. Well, that was a misreading of the situation. We didn't understand the context adequately. Uh, we crafted the wrong strategy. Then we made it a big war uh, with our major units coming in. Uh, search and destroy was a terribly unproductive, counterproductive strategy. It included indiscriminate use of air power, uh, artillery, mad minutes, uh, all of these uh, that, again, were often creating more enemies than they take off the street by their conduct. Um, and it wasn't until 2000, or, uh, I'm sorry, 1970 or 68, when General Abrams took over, that they finally had a joined-up, comprehensive civil-military Vietnamese, U.S., and coalition all together, comprehensive uh, counterinsurgency campaign. But by then, Tet had already taken place. The war support in the U.S. had eroded precipitously, and it was very clear. And of course, another one of. Henry Kissinger's accomplishments uh, really was indeed to figure out a way to get out of it while giving South Vietnam a degree of hope, which, was, which he did do. Uh, and unfortunately, our Congress cut off assistance. It's a counterfactual whether that could have prevented the North from being able to invade the way they did ultimately. Uh, but it would have been nice to, to see if that would have been the case. Um, I'll, I'll leave the last question, or the, the other one, too, to, so we can have another question here. Please. Sure. Thank you, General. Thank you for your leadership and your sentiments toward Jordan. Uh, Ambassador Kausikan, thank you for your presentation. Uh, my question is quite simple. Uh, do you feel, General, that with the continuation of the war, uh, that there might be an even wider um, a conflict in the Middle East uh, engulfing the region, and the second one is relating to the continuation of the war and the high civilian um, casualties therein, uh, and its, uh, its continuation might have uh, repercussions on the long term on the two-state solution itself and the huge divide between the parties. Thank you. These are two very good questions, uh, Ambassador. Thank you. Um, there's grave concern about the possibility the war could widen. I think that the combination of uh, Israeli and American actions in particular uh, is designed to keep that from happening. Uh, so we'll walk our way around. Obviously, the big concern is Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. Iranians supported beyond a militia. I mean, it's basically another army has reportedly 150,000 or so rockets and missiles, some of which have quite considerable accuracy and, and payload. So it could be very, very damaging uh, to Israel. 
Israel has an extraordinary uh, layered air defense, uh, Iron Dome, David Sling, Arrow, Patriot, all the rest of this. And even now, with some feeds coming from uh, U.S. capabilities, of course, when our ships have tremendous air defenses as well. We see that in the Red Sea. We're actually knocking down some of what the Houthis are sending toward Israel. But the fact is, you can overwhelm it. There's a limit to how many you can engage at a given time, and then just the sheer number of interceptors at some point is finite. There's not an endless supply. It's not infinite number of Iron Dome interceptors, uh, even though we've given the two additional batteries that we had and all, presumably, the interceptors uh, as well. So that's very worrisome. But Hezbollah remembers, I think, how devastating uh, the Israeli response was in 2006. We reassessed that. So when I went from Iraq to Central Command, I remember looking and we said, because the original, the ambassador I think will agree, the original assessment was that the Israeli Air Force had overpromised and underdelivered. And we, came, we kept looking at that and we realized, you know, maybe not. There's a lot more damage that was done. And the construction, the reconstruction was going on for you know, decades, literally, uh, after this. We reassessed it again when I was at, at the CIA. And I think that that, that uh, memory, if you will, is still very, very clear uh, in the, the minds of Nasrallah and the other uh, Hezbollah leaders. And they, it would be an act of suicide for them if they did the kind of damage that they could do. So I think deterrence is, is in existence there. I agree uh, with Benny Gantz, who I think yesterday uh, was talking about how we're going to have to do something about this at some point. But that's going to be very challenging. But for now, I think that they're, you know, they'll launch six to 12 attacks per day. They're pretty limited, though. They're not going deeper. Israel is responding in a pretty, again, a proportional manner. I think that that's what will continue for the foreseeable future. Uh, because, again, Hezbollah has to show that they're in sympathy to Hamas, but they're not going to do it to the point that they're going to bring on their own an act of suicide. Uh, the Iraqi Shia militia supported by uh, Iran are very worrisome. Um, I met with a, a very senior former Iraqi official, several of them actually, in this uh, gathering that I was in in, in Dubai. Uh, there's a lot of concern about that. But again, I think that the dynamics there are such that they're not going to try to do something extraordinary. They have done over 90, approaching 100 attacks on U.S. bases, forces that are out there. But these forces are there at the request of the Iraqi prime minister publicly uh, to help them keep an eye on the Islamic State. And, and again, this idea of keeping them for reconstituting. Reconstitution of Hamas may turn out to be the biggest of the challenges that Israel has after destroying Hamas, which I do believe can be done, uh, albeit uh, very, very challenging given the context that I've laid out for you and, and nowhere for the people to go outside the confines uh, of Gaza. Um, and then you have the Houthis in Yemen, and you know it may be that something more robust will have to be done to the Houthis. We'll see how that transpires. Uh, but they've been shooting at our ships, they've been shooting at Israel, they've been creating problems for freedom of navigation for ships. They, they say that they have some kind of linkage uh, to Israel, but in some cases that's not all that clear. Uh, and if that's the case, then over time there's going to have to be you know, an assessment of what needs to be done about that uh, because they're a very problematic actor as well, not just inside Yemen where they've been very, very damaging, but now in terms of, uh, again, freedom of navigation in the Red Sea.
So, question over there. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, General, for your time and your presentation. I'm Stuart Derbyshire, NUS Psychology. I, I have, since October the 7th, witnessed uh, an outpouring of hostility towards Israel from Western institutions that's quite remarkable, I mean, particularly Western universities. I I'm wondering what you make of that. I'm wondering if you think that's going to have any impact on the <coughs> unfolding conflict, and if there's anything you think we can or should do about it. Well, I think actually our universities are coming to grips with this. I mean, in one case, there's been a change of leadership. Um, and there was a hesitation to do all that I think should have been done. Obviously, there is a very clear line, a distinction between freedom of speech and you know, issuing threats and, and, and all the rest of this that went way beyond, uh, again, just the normal reason debate and so forth. That, and I think various universities have sought to, they've, they've done a lot of uh, stock taking actually. I was just at Harvard and MIT, did public appearances at both of those. They had actually sorted it out uh, by then. Um, the, I was in some other universities elsewhere in the country, it was not frankly an issue. Uh, so I think some of this is also just the, this incredible focus on a handful of universities that are truly some of the best in the world. Uh, and where the, the line hasn't been as clear as it might have been. And some of this is also a result of oversensitivity to other things uh, and, and, and the rest of that. So the, I think the bigger issue, frankly, is the issue of uh, continued support for Israel. Obviously, an outpouring of condemnation uh, of the events on 7 October. I mean, just truly horrific, barbaric beyond the pale, and even to the point of then filming them, being proud of them, uploading them, uh, is what I think uh, rightly identifies Hamas as a true extremist organization that has to be destroyed. They cannot be reconciled. There's rank and file even there. I, I will note, by the way, though, I do think that many of the, what you might term bureaucrats, if you will, just sort of government workers, again, in quotes, in Gaza, are going to have to be employed uh, to enable just literally turning the lights back on, repairing damage, getting the water, for, you know, all the basic services. I, th I don't, and so that's a bit different. And I think there will be a degree, not that they're Hamas extremists at all, but they were paid by Hamas. They're going to have to be, if you will, reconciled in the way that we eventually did uh, when we finally realized the error of our ways in Iraq, where we fired the entire you know, Ba'ath Party, but when you go down to the level of bureaucrats, you need to run a country you don't actually understand sufficiently. That was a mistake that haunted us for a number of years. Um, so I think the bigger question has to do with what is the world response over time as inevitably, given the challenges of this particular context, there is further uh, damage and destruction to infrastructure, and there are further civilian casualties. And I think that's a bigger, and I'm sure that that's the issue uh, in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv that, that is, everyone is watching. This is why the U.S. support, President Biden in particular, has been so, so very important. But he also, yesterday, was, you know, he has concerns that he has voiced as well. So Israel's, in a, I think, in a very difficult place in that regard. And they know it, frankly. I mean, there's no question about that. They're conscious of that. Well, there's another question online, but mm -hmm. I'm tempted to ignore it because it's on the South China Sea, which is a bit of a ways from, from the Middle East, you know. But perhaps it's, uh, I'll just read it sure. to you. If you want to answer it, answer it. Uh, China-Philippine tensions are worsening. 
Chinese uh, actions are getting more assertive. Uh, what is a possible reaction from the U.S.? Look, I think we're seeing it. Um, I think we're seeing quite a firm response. Uh, w w in fact, we were in Manila yesterday. Um, the, the government of the Philippines has been, you know, the, the big idea, oh. I think, is it's all about deterrence. Uh, we cannot allow, oh. our national security advisor has described the relationship between China and the U.S. as severe competition. Okay. Um, I think that's at least arguable. Uh, as a description. What we have to ensure is that it never erupts into confrontation. Of course, this is why the meeting between President Xi and President Biden was so important uh, in San Francisco. The effort to, to restore, to some degree, guardrails, a floor for the relation, all, whatever term you want to use, I think is critical. Look, the dependencies that each side has, I mean, a lot is made on the dependencies, about the dependencies that the U.S. and Western countries have on, on uh, China. I mean, during the pandemic, we discovered that where do we get all of our, our personal protective equipment? It's China. Where do we get the precursors for the pharmaceuticals? I mean, so much comes from China, strategic minerals, uh, et cetera. And again, uh, China is our third largest trading partner, right behind uh, Mexico and, and Canada, which are, of course, in, a, in basically one entire continental economy. Uh, with some some issues, some restrictions there. But um, on the other hand, you know, China cannot feed its people or its livestock without what Americans sell to them. So you know, we have to keep that in mind. We have to keep in mind. Yeah, there should be some degree of de-risking. That's that's understandable. It's it's that's thoughtful. You can't decouple. And I think again, the wise people uh, have recognized this. Um, and then when it comes to deterrence, keep in mind, you know, what are the big ideas about deterrence? Well, it's a, a, a result of a potential adversary's assessment of your capabilities on the one hand and your willingness to employ them on the other. And we should ensure that those capabilities are uh, transformed effectively and we're undertaking all kinds of initiatives, the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, et cetera, et cetera, to, to disperse our forces, harden them, improve the defenses uh, and, and the rest of this and then to transform our forces from huge platforms that are incredibly capable, heavily manned, uh, but also incredibly expensive to increasing numbers of unmanned systems that uh, over time will not just be remotely piloted, but will be massive numbers of these, by the way. Again, to shore up deterrence, because the big idea here is to be firm, but not needlessly provocative. And I think that's how the countries in the region are going about. It's how that's Philippines are going about it. Yep. <laughs> Uh, Zaino? Thank you, uh, General, for your sh wonderful sharing um, and for reminding us how complex the situation is. I actually wanted to ask a question about China and Iran and also about these perceived double standards and uh, hypocrisy many sees in the Western world and also in America. But for now, I think I'll just ask you one question. Okay. okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask you, looking at your illustrious <laughs> career, is there one regret that you have, and what would that be? Oh, thank sure. You. Look, we all have we all have plenty of regrets. So there's always, <laughs> you know, um, both personal and and sort of organizational. You know, the, we look in the U.S. Army in particular. There's a culture called the after-action review culture. After every operation we do, we sit down and we go through the operation and we examine, uh, we identify 
you know, what were we trying to achieve and what did we achieve and why didn't we achieve all that we set out to achieve if that was the case? And you then seek to make changes. Uh, it's part of, the, remember this fourth task of determine how you need to refine the big ideas and do it again and again and again. This is what you do, you know, at all levels of leadership. Uh, and we had, there were errors along the way that we made, again, that were very significant. Some seemed very small. I mean, we had a situation in which uh, one of our soldiers used pages of the Koran uh, for target practice, essentially. We had ranges. Every combat outpost base had a 25-meter range so you could zero your weapon and your optics, make sure it's going in the right place. Uh, and, and a local worker found that because we had a lot of host nation workers on there. And, you know, within eight hours, I was apologizing on camera to the prime minister of Iraq, and President Bush was calling him personally uh, to apologize as well. These things happen. Um, what you need to do, you know that Someone told me, you know, it's not, don't tell me how high the guy jumped, tell me how high he jumped back after he got knocked down or knocked himself down. And I think that's the measure of, of not just a leader, but of organizations as well. How do you respond? You know, it's pretty easy to respond to success or victory or what have you. Uh, life is not full of endless uh, quantities of that. The question is, how do you respond to setbacks? And I think there are, again, literally big ideas about that. You know, take stock, acknowledge, apologize if necessary, make amends, uh, then figure out how to mitigate the risk of it again. Uh, get yourself up or the organization dust yourself off and start putting one foot in front of the other and repeating the process. So uh, I think that's the, the lesson perhaps for leaders, if you will. I occasionally will impart that to younger leaders because, because again, life is not, you know, in, in the U.S., I'm, I don't know if you have the high five moment uh. that, in, you know, that term here. You know, everybody high fives after you score a touchdown or whatever a goal or what have you. Life is not full of high five moments. Uh, it's full full of a lot of moments where the high five is not not uh, achieved. So, there's a Japanese proverb: fall down seven times, get up eight. There you go. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's another question over there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, first, and then you. Professor Rohan Gunaratna from Nanyang Technological University, uh, General Patriot. Is that the MIT of? Yes, yes. very much. Okay. More or less. Uh, uh, General, I you, can't say more or less. You, more or less. <laughs> you served in the most, the, the two most difficult battlefields in the world, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and I myself spent uh, many visits to Afghanistan and Iraq and I saw your service. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you tackle the situation in Gaza? Because Iran is supporting not only Hamas, yes. Hezbollah, yep. the yep. Iraqi uh, militia yep. groups, Ansarullah in yes. uh, yep. Yemen. Without taking on Iran, how will the situation, the security situation in the Middle East improve? Imagine you are the Prime Minister you, of Ron. Israel. I mean, you have asked your question. How will you respond? Okay. You have asked your question. Thanks. Sure. Iran. You know, so as <laughs> I think someone kindly noted, I taught not just international relations, but economics over the years as well. And I learned as an economics professor that you always begin the answer to every question by saying, it depends. <laughs> and it does depend in this case. It depends on whether there is escalation. 
Uh, I think right now the objective is to keep it from, again, becoming a wider war. Uh, it depends on whether Iran directly confronts the U.S., which I don't think is going to happen. Again, you're, they're staring at two entire aircraft carrier task forces with uh, a submarine under the uh, surface, nuclear power that doesn't have to come back up. Uh, there's a formidable capability out there, uh, and there's a lot more that can reach it all the way from the United States with just a lot of air refueling to and from. Um, so again, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think Iran has always tried to feel our edges, as they say, to see how much, what can they get away with. They do this with Israel all the time as well. And uh, so I, I hope that it will not be necessary to have direct conf confrontation, but there may also have to be some, if you will, indirect activities that take place uh, that uh, I don't want to get into the details of, but I'll say that in some of my past positions every now and then would dream, you know, what, what could we do that might send a message? They wouldn't necessarily acknowledge it. We wouldn't acknowledge it. It would happen. They'd know that we know that they know that, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, and there may be scope for some of that here as well. Who knows? Some of that may be actually going on. And I have no uh, insider uh, information on that. So that, I think that's another possibility that is there. You know, in, in, in some of these situations, again, you can't resolve them easily. You have to manage them. Um, we managed the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact for decades during the Cold War, and eventually that was resolved. Uh, and there was the wisdom to do that. Um, we're seeking to manage, obviously, the relationship between the U.S. and the Western world and, and China, uh, noting again, as I said earlier, the enormous dependencies in all respects. Uh, and that's, I think, to a degree, what has to be done with Iran. Those that say that, well, we can topple the Iranian government or have regime change, I, number one, I think, underestimate or don't fully understand the, the enormous size and dimensions of the security state uh, of Iran uh, and the degree to which the regime is just, there's so many people that are in there. This is not Egypt where the military is going to step back and let Mubarak uh, go and they'll keep their jobs. Uh, this is a very different uh, dynamic. And frankly, then we all show, I think, you know, a degree of humility in, um, again, what you think you might be able to achieve in the world is often in, in good order. And, and I think we have to acknowledge that some of the regime change operations that we carried out didn't exactly turn out the way that we hoped they did they would, and those around the Arab Spring. I mean, there's no Arab Spring country now, now that Tunisia's democracy has been become an autocracy. I think Libya, <coughs> Yemen, Syria, et cetera, there have been no wonderful outcomes uh, from those. And so again, I think you have to be measured uh, about this kind of endeavor. Okay, we have just time for one last question. The gentleman in front there. Uh, hello, General. Uh, my name is Bill Fu. I'm a business executive, although I'm linked with James Cook University and also the International Institute of Strategic Studies, but I'm asking on my uh, personal capacity. My question is, what is your view about the U.S. engagement with the two other big powers, China and Russia, in relation to the Middle East, where, where are some what are some of the areas where you can cooperate and you know, collaborate to fix up some of the sure. problems? Yep. And what are some of the areas where there could be challenges where 
your interest with the other two may not align or, uh, you know, uh, the big powers may be supporting sure. different yep. countries. Yep. I think we talked earlier about uh, the fact that there are, there are some mutual interests uh, between U.S. and China in particular when it comes to the greater Middle East. Uh, first and foremost would again be freedom of navigation of the Gulf given the enormous uh, consumption in that regard in the case of China, uh, the largest consumer for many of the uh, products from various of the Gulf states. Uh, and then frankly, freedom of navigation elsewhere if you draw a wider uh, through the Suez, through the Mandeb, and, and so forth. Um, so in that regard, I think, I, I don't think China wants to see the world unravel either. Again, it has been for many years, it may not be this year, but it has been the source of the greatest growth uh, in the world, certainly over the past uh, 30 or more years. Uh, and again, the relationships that enable that, again, it doesn't want to see that construct uh, be uh, undermined completely. Russia is more problematic. Uh, Russia obviously in its relationship with Iran, which is interesting because historically, of course, they have not exactly seen eye to eye. They've been historic rivals in many cases. Um, let's remember that the creation of what came to be known as Central Command um, evolved from Russia invading Afghanistan and appearing to be poised to do the same with Iran. And so you created this organization that again now is known as Central Command, uh, the job of which was to defend Iran, by the way, uh, against uh, a Soviet invasion. Uh, so the historically, there has been, again, much more of a competition, a rivalry, a confrontation, um, a threat. And now, of course, they're working together, uh, Iran providing drones and missiles and other munitions and so forth, Russia providing technology uh, to them. That is a worrisome one. Uh, Russia is out to put sticks in the spokes of a variety of different uh, relationships, uh, dynamics, and locations. And they are you know, very clearly a, a very, very dangerous force, which is why we need very much, uh, all of us really, uh, to provide all that we can to Ukraine to enable Ukraine at some point to convince Vladimir Putin that Russia cannot outsuffer the Ukrainians, the Europeans, and the Americans uh, in the way that Russians outsuffered Napoleon's army and uh, Hitler's Nazis. Uh, and because make no mistake about it, his revanchist revisionist grievance-filled vision of history uh, would lead him to continue, you know, who would be next? Moldova, Lithuania, again, the Baltic states, et cetera. Uh, and so, again, I think it's imperative that we support uh, Ukraine, again, with everything that we possibly can. And I think eventually in the U.S. we will work our way through our domestic political challenges in the House of Representatives and, and, and get that done. Uh, but they are a very, very threatening force, um, in, especially with him at the helm and the way he has evolved over the years. You know, we have tried very, very hard. I was, in fact, at the Munich Security Conference when the reset button was produced on stage. And, you know, okay. people, I think, now wish, God, I wish I, you know, I had no part in that thing. Um, but that proved out to be, uh, you know, a very forlorn hope. Look, when I was the, the if, if you will, the chef de cabinet for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs when I was a full colonel, I remember flying, we flew all the way to Geneva, I think, just to have lunch with the, his Soviet, or with his Russian, by then Russian counterpart. We had a Russian NATO council. 
there were a lot of efforts uh, to try to engage Russia uh, and frankly to keep it from going down the road that it has gone tragically uh, under Vladimir Putin. Can I, at, at the end here, just say sure. thanks so much uh, for your oh. wonderful moderation of this, uh, for the very stimulating questions, uh, a wonderful audience, uh, and frankly, I hope that this has validated the idea of a conversation rather than me standing up here reading a speech for 60 minutes to all of you and watching the cell phones come out uh, as you wonder sure. when I'm going to finish. <laughs> well, the thanks should be for all of us to you, and can you join me in... Thank you.